The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Let's get into the message for today. And what I'm basically going to do is I'm going to begin by doing a little bit of review of the message that I preached two weeks ago, the weekend before Refocus. Uh, where we looked at this idea of allegiance to Jesus. And I'm going to kind of flesh it out in a little more detail and examine it from a few different angles. Then the second part of the message for today, I'm going to try to take some of the things that were even brought out during the Refocus Weekend on the role of the Holy Spirit and try to bring those two ideas of allegiance to Jesus and the role of the Holy Spirit into just one teaching here. Okay? So let's begin with a word of prayer, and then let's get into the word. Lord, we want to invite your spirit here in this place to open our hearts, open our hands to you, because we need you. Um, There is so much struggle, and there is so much um, pain, there is so much weakness. And so we ask for the ministry of the Holy Spirit to be accomplished in our hearts. We pray for the brokenness and humility to receive what you want to do in us. And we pray for faith that would be ignited in us to believe in so much more than the limitations of our flesh to the power of your Holy Spirit and what your Spirit can do in us because of your love for us. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In that first message in this Surrendered series, I preached um, on this idea of allegiance to Jesus. And I began that message with that kind of provocative question, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? And we talked about how traditionally most of us have come to understand what it means when we say the gospel by this four spiritual laws that has really become very predominant in the modern church today. Um, and it basically kind of outlines this uh, essence of what the gospel is, you know. Um, and one of the things that I mentioned is that if you actually look at the occurrence of this word gospel in the Bible itself, a pretty strong argument could be made that this is not how the Bible really actually outlines the good news of the gospel. One of the issues is that these four spiritual laws tend to really put an emphasis on us. And so I highlighted and underlined just these words that keep pointing back at us. You need to do this. This is your condition. This is your situation. And this is what God does for you. But when we look at the gospel in the Bible itself, it actually doesn't even address us directly. The good news is not so much about us as much as it is about God himself and what it has to share about what he has done. For Jesus, proclaiming the gospel was the same as proclaiming the good news that the kingdom had come. This kingdom that was talked about from the Old Testament on of this time when God would reign as king over this earth. 
with all of the evil and all of the bad things and everything that happens, there was this longing among God's people, Lord, when are you going to finally come with your kingdom and reign as king over us and settle all the score, make everything right? And when Jesus came, he said, the good news I bring, the gospel I bring to you is that the kingdom of God has come. It's here now with my coming. And then as we talked about in that first message, for most Christians, it seems like the climax of Jesus' life is his death and his resurrection. It's in fact, many of us feel like the story ends with his resurrection. But when you look at the very earliest sermons preached by the apostles in the book of Acts after Jesus rose from the dead, that is not the climax of the gospel that they preached. Their climax was when Jesus became enthroned at the right hand of God. That was their climax. And it fits with what Jesus taught about the kingdom. In Acts chapter 2, verse 32 to 33, this Jesus gave, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So what Peter is saying is, now that Jesus is seated as king over his kingdom, at the right hand of God, he gives us the Holy Spirit and pours out that spirit on the citizens of his kingdom. Paul echoes that same emphasis in his preaching of the gospel. Philippians 2, verse 9 through 11. Well, again, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. Therefore, God, speaking of Jesus, has highly exalted him or super exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so when Jesus comes, he declares the gospel is the kingdom is here. Then he dies and he's raised again. And what his apostles, his followers declare is the good news is that now this resurrected Lord sits on his throne. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus won the victory for us on the cross and is now enthroned as king. To be saved, therefore, we must pledge allegiance or faith to this king. That is the response of the gospel. Pledge your faith. Pledge your allegiance to this king. Now, one of the things I didn't really get into in that message two weeks ago that I feel like I need to clarify is there can be the sense of wondering if Jesus is king over his kingdom, if he now sits on his throne... Why do bad things still happen? Why is there still evil? Why is there still sickness and death? And one of the things that Jesus taught was that the kingdom that he proclaimed had come had not come in its fullness. The kingdom had come, and so we can experience parts of that victory now, glimpses of it. But the full victory and the full coming of the kingdom of God will not happen until Jesus comes again, his return, his second coming. And so we're living in this time in history where we are experiencing parts of the kingdom, but we also experience pain and suffering and death. All of that will not be fully dealt with until Jesus 
returns. Well, after that, we looked at this idea of what faith means. What does it mean to have faith? And we, I said at, at that first message that we tend to think of faith as believing a truth, belief. And so to have faith in Jesus, we argue is basically to believe in a bunch of facts about him, that he lived and he died and he rose again from the dead three days later for our sins. But as we looked at a couple weeks ago, that word faith does not always just mean belief. It can actually mean to pledge loyalty, to be faithful, to swear allegiance. And a strong argument can be made that in many of these passages that talk about faith in Jesus, that's actually what the Bible writers had in mind. To have faith in Jesus is to pledge our loyalty to him. In other words, the gospel is that Jesus is the enthroned king, and the response to that good news is to surrender ourselves in allegiance to that king. And I pointed out two implications of this pledge. To pledge allegiance to Jesus is to publicly declare him as our Lord and King. Um, in fact, could we actually go to the next slide? Yeah. And we talked about the close association of that pledge with baptism. Baptism being a visible, public declaration of what happened maybe privately within our heart. That the allegiance that we declare has to be a public one. I am not ashamed of Jesus. I am not ashamed to be identified with this gospel. Secondly, to pledge allegiance to Jesus as Lord and King means we will obey him. In other words, when we understand that faith is not agreeing to a set of facts, but loyalty and obedience to Jesus' authority and we can understand these kind of passages like in Matthew 7.21 where it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In other words, anyone can verbally pledge allegiance to me. Anyone can, with their mouths, call me Lord. But that doesn't mean anything if your life doesn't follow suit. If there isn't a loyalty displayed through obedience to my commands, that shows that I am your Lord. It's interesting when we understand the gospel this way to think about this passage that's familiar to many of us, the Great Commission, which was what Jesus commanded his followers to do after he rose from the dead and before he ascended to heaven. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 to 20, it says, Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There's his enthronement right there, right? Therefore, in light of this, in other words, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's the public declaration of allegiance. And teaching them to obey Everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you 
to the very end of the age. In other words, what is the heart of the command given to us? Teach the nations to bow before their king and obey everything I have taught you. What I have taught you, teach the nations to obey me. Now, let's be honest here. That kind of rubs us the wrong way, right? Because under the gospel paradigm that we've been brought up in, under this idea of grace, I think we don't like the fact that Jesus seems to be pointing to a man-centered perspective of going, why is he talking about obedience here? Why isn't he instead talking about teach them to believe the things that I did for them? That would be a much more gospel paradigm type of a proclamation, right? But Jesus says this. He says, I have been enthroned in this kingdom. And so you pledge your allegiance to me and be baptized. Publicly declare your allegiance and make more followers to the ends of the earth. And when you reach them, teach them what? Teach them to obey my commands. I want to say this. I, I think there is so much confusion when it comes to this issue of obedience and works in the life of a Christian because we're trying to reconcile this type of teaching with this idea that we're saved by grace. So let me see if I can try to clarify some of that for you. Okay? I want to affirm this truth absolutely without negotiation. That there are no good works that we can do to earn favor in God's eyes and contribute to our salvation. Okay? This is absolutely gospel truth. There is no good works that we can do to earn favor in God's eyes and to contribute to our salvation. I want to also say this. It is only by the finished work of Jesus, his perfect obedience, his death on a cross, and his resurrection by which we are saved. Okay? I fully, fully, wholeheartedly affirm these truths. That is what it means to be saved by grace. I can contribute nothing to my salvation. None of my righteous acts count for anything when it comes to my righteousness. Okay? But, here's the point. Based on these truths, I think we have misrepresented what it means to have faith in Jesus. Because in our wrong thinking, we think, well, if my works don't contribute to my salvation, then what else could faith in Jesus mean other than belief or head knowledge in what Jesus has done? In other words, a further statement based on that wrong thinking is, it doesn't matter what kind of life you live. All that matters is not your works, but the truth that you believe in your heart about God's works. And I'm going to argue that that's actually not what the Bible teaches. If faith means pledging loyalty or allegiance to Jesus, then works and obedience are an inseparable part of the process of salvation that God is accomplishing in every true believer. 
That's what James says in chapter two, verse 20 to 26. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith, apart from works, is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now that's in the Bible. In other words, maybe we can say it like this. Our works do not contribute to our salvation, but true salvation must be evidenced by visible works of righteousness. Okay? Any view of salvation that doesn't require an actual visible transformation of the person that is saved does not capture the full picture of salvation as presented to us in the Bible. I've shared with you this quote in previous messages by Dallas Willard who comments on this whole struggle of misunderstanding in the following way. The teaching of salvation by grace through faith has in many quarters brought people to a condition where they really don't know what they are supposed to do. Currently, we are not only saved by grace, we are paralyzed by it. There is deep confusion. We find it hard to see that grace is not opposed to effort, but is opposed to earning. Earning and effort are not the same thing. Earning is an attitude and grace is definitely opposed to that. But it is not opposed to effort. When you see a person who has been caught on fire by grace, you are apt to see some of the most astonishing efforts you can imagine. What Willard is trying to say is when God saves a person, he doesn't just declare that person innocent from their guilt. but he continues that work in that person so that they can produce works of righteousness that honor him. And those always go hand in hand in true salvation. Let me ask you another kind of provoking question. What if I were to ask you, how can you have assurance that you are saved? Okay? How would you answer that? How can you have assurance that you're saved? You're truly saved. You're one of the saints. You're going to go to heaven one day. Well, I want to say this. Under the common understanding of the gospel, I think we are likely to say something like this. Well, you know, for our assurance of salvation... We should never look inside ourselves for this assurance because the kind of lives that we live have nothing to do with our assurance of salvation. 
We should never look at what we do, only what we believe about what Jesus did for us. And again, under this gospel paradigm, it, it seems to make a lot of sense. It's just, I want to argue, that's not what the Bible itself says about assurance. Look at what 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 to 6 says. And by this we know, that's assurance language, right? By this we know. He wants to give his audience the assurance of their salvation. By this we know that we have come to know him, speaking of Jesus, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Live a Christ-like life. 1 John chapter 3, verse 6 to 9. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. These are difficult words, aren't they? And the truth is, I don't think we readily accept this teaching. John is not talking about perfection here. He's not saying if you slip up once, well, there you go. It proves you're not a true Christian. But what he's saying is, if there is just no evidence of victory in your life over sin, that really brings serious doubt to the reality of the work of God in your life. One last one, Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, I want to say this. None of us will ever reach perfection in this lifetime when it comes to our struggle with sin. We won't. I also want to say this. Is, it's kind of paradoxical. But the more spiritually mature you become, often the worse you feel about your sin because that's kind of part of the process of spiritual maturity, right? Is that the more you grow spiritually, the more you become aware of your failings and your sin. These are all true statements. But that should not lead to the false conclusion that therefore, hey, listen, we're all just broken people in the same boat and it's all the same. Because the Bible itself 
describes the picture of some people within the faith <coughs> that could be living displeasing lives before him and others that are living a righteous life that pleases him. In other words, there is taught in the Bible such a thing as a life of obedience that pleases God. That Christians are called, even warned, to strive for in their following of God. I want to add this, though, is that even in that striving, the Bible teaches, it is always by God's power. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10 says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And by his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. This is Paul speaking about him, comparing himself with the other apostles. And then he says this, Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Philippians 2, verse 12 to 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the great mystery. Is that what he's saying is you need to strive, you need to make efforts, you need to expend great effort, but even as you expend that effort, realize that even the ability to make that effort is God's grace of his work in you. In other words, what I'm presenting to you is not this picture that God somehow kickstarts our salvation with his grace and then says, well, I did my part. I hope you make it the rest of the way with your effort. That is not what I am saying this morning. Even in the effort we are called to give, it is by his grace that we are able to even do so. And I want to say that what connects these two, the missing piece, is the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. In other words, the primary way that God is at work in you is through the Holy Spirit who is alive in you. If you are a follower of Jesus. Now, before I get into how the Holy Spirit helps us, we need to understand our starting point before God even saved us. In John chapter 3, verse 19 to 20, it says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. This is the state of every human being before God does his act of grace of saving us. And the reason why I highlight these verses is because this is not a picture of people who are lost because they lack information about God is I think often how we reduce it is we think if I were only presented with the facts, I would choose God. Anytime, who wouldn't? You'd be a fool not to. Why would you align yourself against God? But what John is saying is that's actually not the picture is a lack of information. The issue is not about knowledge, but about desire, 
about the heart. It's talking about a heart that is so twisted that it has come to love the darkness and hate God. It is talking not about head knowledge, but it is talking about the passions that control us and drive us. John is talking about love, and love is about desire. And it's saying in our fallen state, we love the darkness. We have chosen the darkness. This is not a casual life preference. This is the picture of bondage, a heart that is incapable of responding positively to God because the deepest desires within our heart are bent against him and toward evil. In other words, in our natural state, we hate the light and we love the darkness. Commenting on these verses, John Piper writes, it's not that light is lacking, but that light is hated. This is a real bondage. You cannot embrace as bright and beautiful what you hate. You cannot repudiate as dark and ugly what you love. Hate and love are not decisions. They are profound, controlling preferences of the palate of the soul. You don't choose what you love and hate. That's so true, isn't it? We don't choose what we love or hate. These are things that are driven, driven so deep from within our hearts. Says, I love these things or I hate these things. And what it says is unless God does an initial work in our heart, that's our posture is we all love the darkness. We are fond of the darkness and we hate God. We hate his light. But this is where the Holy Spirit comes in to completely reorder our desires so that we can love God and love his truth and hate sin and hate the darkness. 2 John chapter 4, verse 13. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. His Holy Spirit, that's how we know that we have God, is the spirit of God within us. Romans chapter 8, verse 5 through 11. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their mind on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You see, all that previous stuff I was sharing with you about pledging allegiance and the life of righteousness that God demands and saying, without holiness, you will not see God. I hope there was something registering in you that goes, that is ridiculous. 
Who can live up to that standard? Now you have taken away any assurance that I have of salvation because I don't think I'm gonna measure up to that standard when I see God. I thought it was only about pointing to the cross and saying, hey, that's my ticket to heaven, man. Just look at Jesus, Jesus. But now you're gonna look at my works? You're gonna put my life on the judgment seat? And you're gonna, you're gonna check me? Saying Jesus is, and God is saying, yeah. I'm gonna look at your life. I'm gonna look at your works. And the only way that you pass that test is the continuing work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Because if you try to live the commands of Jesus and obey them by the flesh, you realize how futile it is, don't you? The Christian life cannot be lived by human effort alone. It cannot. As Paul says here, if you are still in the flesh, you cannot please God. The passions that control you are too great. Our love of the darkness is too strong, but if the Holy Spirit comes in you and begins to do that changing work in you, then he can begin to reorder those passions and train you into the love of God and the hatred of sin. In other words, don't lower the bar so that you can make out this Christian life by human effort. But read it in the pages of Scripture for what it is as this high calling of righteousness and realize every day I need the work of the Holy Spirit in my life to be able to live out this impossible calling to which I have been called. And I want to say that, brothers and sisters, is in my years of pastoral ministry, it's scary to me how many Christians I see who know all of the biblical principles in their head and yet they are trying to live them out by their own power, grinding through it, gritting their teeth, trying to live it out by duty, by your own strength, depending on your own ability. When filled in the pages of the New Testament is this repeated teaching of life in the Spirit living in the power of that Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except the Holy Spirit. That statement, Jesus is Lord, is not a declaration of fact. Like saying a chipmunk is a mammal. <laughs> Jesus is Lord. That is a pledge of allegiance, right? Right? That is a pledge of allegiance. When you say Jesus is Lord, you are declaring him as Lord of your life. And so what he's saying is unless the Spirit does a work in you, you cannot make that profession. You cannot. It has to be by the work of the Spirit that you can pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ and live the life he has called you to live of obedience. In other words, the Holy Spirit draws forth allegiance to Jesus from a heart that is totally set on fire by him and for him. You know, I, I suspect that some of you who came to Refocus this last weekend um, maybe struggled a little because, you know, the truth is if you were there Saturday night, things got kind of emotional, you know? A lot of tears were being shed and I think something really powerful happened. And 
I think there's a struggle with what we do with these kind of experiences because I think for a lot of us, we went through all of this roller coaster of the youth group days, you know, and you know the routine is you went there to the first retreat, it was so powerful, and you got slain by the Spirit, and you were just on fire, and then you went to the next retreat, and it just wasn't quite the same, or maybe it was, but man, it just, you know, what, what is the word we use all the time in youth ministry is emotional roller coaster, right? And by the time you hit your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, you're ready to get off that ride. You're saying, yeah, that's just the, that's just the fanaticism and the instability of youth, you know? I'm an adult now. And I, I, I kind of live on an even keel. But I want to say that I think emotions are a huge part of what drives us. You know, we often talk about thinkers and feelers, you know? But I want to say this. All of us are closet feelers. <laughs> and that's speaking as a thinker, Okay? Because the truth is, I don't think any one of us rationalizes our way through life's choices. I think as the Bible says, what we are driven by are not rationalized decisions, but our passions that lie deep within our heart. And I think that's precisely where the Holy Spirit so often does his greatest work. Jonathan Edwards, who by any measure was a thinker and not a feeler, the great revivalist and pastor during the Great Awakening, the first Great Awakening in America. It's interesting, you know. He talked about this importance of this term that he used called the affections, the affections, which are like emotions, but more what Edwards had in mind are these deeply seated passions that are expressed often in emotions. But he says, these are the things that drive the human soul. And so God must meet us at that place of our affections. The things we love. The things we love. And I want to say, brothers and sisters, that that is the work that the Holy Spirit can do in us. It's to give us joy and strength in the midst of our struggle and pain to give us hope in the midst of hopelessness, to know God's love in the midst of our failures and insecurities, to give us a renewed sense of calling when we feel lost or inadequate. And I understand that it feels like it's riding a tightrope because, man, it's, it feels like what you're saying is we ought to chase the emotions. That's not what I'm saying. It's not like a drug addict looking for the next high. We don't chase the emotions per se. We seek the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's just that the truth is often when we experience that work, it flows not only into what we believe in our heads, but what we feel in our hearts. One of the things that I love so much about what Dr. Ron Walburn shared with us this last weekend was this phrase that he said, Expectation without agenda. Expectation without agenda. What he meant by this is, when we get into this whole discussion of the Holy Spirit, it gets so messy and ugly so quickly. 
And unfortunately, what drives me nuts and what's so tragic right now is that the teaching of the Holy Spirit has been hijacked by this debate between charismatic and non-charismatic. And what it has done for many Christians is just, I don't want to get into that fray. I don't want to deal with all of that monkey business. And so what we just do is just do nothing with the Spirit. Because it's too messy. And the truth is, we have some in the charismatic side who have an agenda. And say, hey, listen, man, like I've got the spirit and it looks like you don't got the spirit. And when you get the spirit, it's going to look like what I do. <laughs> so just keep, keep pressing on. But, you know, I'm sorry, you don't have the spirit. I mean, I know it's funny, but I, I know people who talk like this because they have an agenda. It has to look just like they experienced it, otherwise it's not real, right? And they project all of their personal experience onto others and demand that that happen to you. But the other side of it, you know, are the people that expect nothing. It's the Holy Spirit on autopilot. It's like having a little pocket spirit. <laughs> I'm, sh- I'm sure he's there. I don't know what that means, but it's good to know he's there, you know? But there's no actual real vital relationship with the Holy Spirit. And the truth is, you're living in the flesh, just trying to grind through by your effort. And what I so desperately long for us is to, for us to just explode these camps, explode these categories, and quit talking about charismatic and non-charismatic, and just saying, can I just get to that place of expectancy without an agenda, where I can just say, I feel the frustration of what it means when I try to live this Christian life by my own efforts. And so what I can at least acknowledge, whether I'm open to all of that signs and wonders stuff that makes me really nervous, is at least say, I need the power of the Holy Spirit in my life to do for me what I cannot do for myself, to mend my broken marriage, or to change this child that I discipline and yell at but will not change. I need the Spirit. I need the Spirit's work. And I pray that that's what this Refocus Weekend represents for our church, is that we come together united as one church family without an agenda, but with expectancy and say, Spirit, do your work in our presence. Oh, man, I've gone way long here. <laughs> I still got three more pages. <laughs> All right, okay. Let me just wrap up. Uh, I went off my notes way too much today. All right. Let's pray. <laughs> I'll, I'll continue it next week, okay? Because there's more teaching here on the Spirit. Let's, let's close in prayer. Um. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. When I look at ICC, it's very hard to label us because the truth is we come from many different traditions here in this room. (laughs) Some of us, I would say, come more from that side of saying, you know, uh, all of that Holy Spirit stuff is just hooey and it's just, it makes me uncomfortable because I feel like it's just emotionalism. It's all hype and people just try to work up people into this fever pitch of emotion And then out of that, you know, oh, I got healed or, you know, God touched me or something like that. And you want nothing to do with it. 
And then there's others of you that judge the others in this church because they aren't doing what you're doing. You kind of look down on them. You say, yeah, that guy is spiritually dead. You know, I don't know what's wrong with him or what's wrong with her. Uh, but they got to get their act together and realize that God is here, you know? And I don't think that's what the Holy Spirit is about. wonder how much of that grieves the Holy Spirit. Um, my hope is that what would unite us as a church is to look with courage at the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel, as it is preached in the Bible. And what that gospel says is that God calls us to pledge allegiance to his son who reigns as king over his kingdom. And in that swearing of loyalty to live a life of obedience that pleases him. And I want to say that life is impossible by human effort. You cannot will yourself into that obedience. It requires surrender. Surrender to the Holy Spirit. It says, Holy Spirit, do for me what I am incapable of doing by my own power. So that is the prayer that I want to invite you to this morning as we close out our worship. Expectancy without an agenda. It may be quiet. It may be invisible. Nobody can see a difference on your face. Or it may be a touch that is expressed in some pretty powerful emotions, like what happened at Refocus. I don't know. But it's not about trying to produce an outcome. It's just coming with an open hand to Jesus, saying, let your spirit rest on me and touch me. Change the stubborn heart that is constantly pulled to the darkness because, God, it's not a knowledge issue. I have all the facts in my head, but the truth is I love the darkness. And the truth is, God, I hate you, and I want to love you and hate the darkness. Do supernaturally for me what I cannot do for myself. Would you just pray that for a couple minutes as our worship team comes to lead us in a time of response?